You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change and when should we start building our rafts? Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to All Creatures Podcast. Today, Chris and I will be talking with Ingrid Newkirk, who is the president of People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, or more commonly known as PETA. It is the world's largest animal rights organization. And PETA has achieved a litany of animal rights reforms. For instance, convincing some of the world's largest fashion brands not to use fur, animal testing bans by the thousands on personal care companies, ending the use of animals in automobile crash tests, and closing the Ringling Brothers and Barnum Circus. And just this month alone, PETA has helped expose and rescue over 4,000 beagles living in horrible conditions slated to be used in labs. And now these beagles are rescued and looking for their forever homes. And Ingrid is also a well-accomplished author who has written several books, including PETA, The Practical Guide to Animal Rights, Animal Kind, Save the Animals, Compassion Cookbook, I got to check that one out, (laughs) and many others. And for today's interview, we'll be talking with Ingrid all about animal rights, the past, the present, and future. And we're also going to be highlighting the 30th anniversary edition of Free the Animals, the amazing true story of the Animal Liberation Front in North America. Ingrid's passion and dedication to making this world a better place for all living beings has inspired countless others to do so as well. So we're really excited to introduce Ingrid Newkirk to All Creatures Podcast. Hello, Ingrid, and welcome. Hello. Thank you very much for doing the podcast. Marvelous. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Well, Ingrid, okay. That was a great intro, Angie, and uh, I don't know if Ingrid really needs one because uh, p- anybody that works with animals is very aware of Ingrid and her work. Ingrid, I was not aware of your past and your childhood. Like it, 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 It's an amazing story. I I really, if we could just highlight a little bit of it because I'm, I'm such a believer in, in what we experience in childhood carries on in our adulthood, but can you give us a little background on growing up? But the one that really gets me is is as a child in India, working with such disadvantaged people in the slums, working with Mother Teresa. Can you just kind of talk about you know where you grew up and in, in some of that childhood experience? Yeah, I grew up all over the place. 
I was one of those international children dragged from pillar to post because my father was a navigational engineer. And when I was about seven, I went to India with my family because they were expecting a war with China. And so my father actually designed bombing systems and he was on loan from the British government to the Indian government. So I grew up in India, I was very naive, I adored animals. And so rather perversely, if I saw a taxi and a horse-drawn cart, I wanted to take the horse-drawn cart. And it didn't occur to me. And when we went to Kashmir, for example, I bought a wildcat fur hat that as a little girl, I was so proud to wear. And of course, it didn't occur to me where that cat would have come from or how that cat would have been killed and trapped. But my mother was always somebody who took in refugees. There were refugees from Tibet. There were refugees from all sorts of things, human. And she always stopped if there was an animal in need. And she had a motto. She said, it doesn't matter who suffers. It matters that they suffer and what you can do about it. And that's the kind of milieu I grew up with of taking, having a house full of refugees of all species and um, looking after them. And every year I used to go to the fete, the fair run by the British embassy and they would have a big um, tin tub full of ducks, live ducks. And in order to get a duck, you would have to toss wooden rings at them and try to get a ring around their neck. And every year, I got a duck. I spent all my pocket money until I got a duck. <laughs> and I loved that duck with all my heart. And it was only later I found out that when I went away to boarding school, at the end of the year, my mother gave the duck to the cook because mm. we didn't connect the dots then. We loved dogs and horses and we didn't like cruelty, but we ate them, we wore them, we bought things that were tested on them, and we just didn't put two and two together. And now, Ingrid, do you have a moment later in life where it was just this aha, I, I need to do something for these animals, I need to be more involved in their rights? Well, I was a very slow learner. I think human beings are very slow learners generally, and I'm a prime example. So here I was with my fur hat as a child. When I was 19, I had a full length fur coat that I thought looked fabulous. And it was actually like a Ginger Rogers fur coat made of a hundred squirrel pelts. And yet I loved animals. <laughs> I thought it was this artistic, fabulous thing. And I loved to eat steak tartare and I loved all kinds of animal products that my father had uh, as a gourmand, he was in Australia. He um, sat in that little table in the restaurant near the opera house and ordered all these fabulous foods. I grew up with that. The only thing I wouldn't eat was calves brains on toast, which he loved. Um, but everything else went down my throat. What happened was that I first stopped eating lobsters because I was, I think, 20 and I was taken out for a birthday dinner. And it was a wonderful evening. We were drinking wine, having a great time. They brought live lobsters to the table. I picked one. And I didn't realize then 
that they put them under the grill if you say broiled, and they put them in hot water if you say boiled. And I said broiled, which I later learned they slit open the back and they put butter and salt and pepper and they slide them under the grill, they're alive. But it didn't occur to me, having a marvelous time, the lobster came back to the table, I cut into it, I put that morsel in my mouth, and suddenly I realized, subconsciously it must have clicked, when they brought the live lobsters to the table, they had wiggled their antennae. And of course, lobsters can't speak. Mm -hmm. And somehow I thought, hang on a minute, there's an, another living being was trying his best to communicate. And I just said, off with his head. And when I put that bit of lobster in my mouth, I started to cry. It was out of the blue. And I had made my first connection. And from there, one incident after another, one eye-opening incident after another, I began my journey toward animal rights. But it was a slow one, and I was not a quick learner. It, 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 when you look at your body of work in, in PETA, it, it has undoubtedly changed the world. So hats off to you to taking up a cause and really making change. I mean, nobody can really argue that PETA has not impacted the public consciousness and demanded better animal welfare. You know, anybody that loves animals and doesn't see that needs to open their eyes because when, and Angie's going to get into the book because the book really, you know, Free the Animals talks about where we were in the eighties and where we are today to, to an extent, but you really have impacted global consciousness, which is amazing. And, and animals are being treated better today because of the work PETA has done. For the inception of PETA, where's the mission today? Like, how has that that changed over the years from at first in your face, this is what's going on. And everybody's like, wow, what? Nobody was aware of it to, okay, we know it's going on. Now, how do we keep improving? Because we need to, we still need to with our animal welfare laws. They're not, they're not where they need to be across the globe. So what is PETA doing today? And how is that mission uh, changed, I guess, is the big question. The mission has never changed, but the world has changed around it. Mm -hmm. Because when we started out, we were going to be called justice for non-humans. And I now detest that term, non-humans. It's like me saying I'm a non-hamster or something. And they're not non-anything. They're other than. And we are one animal among many, as of course we know if we took elementary biology. But our mission was always that the understanding must be that animals are not ours. They're not, our motto is animals are not ours to eat, wear, experiment on, use for any other purpose. So that's, that's consistent. That's never changed. What's changed is we are still made fun of because we push the envelope. And my thought is if you tell people what they already know, then what's the point? You might as well not bother. So you have to tell them something that's a relatively new thought. Um, but what when we started, the idea that a woman wouldn't wear a fur was outrageous. It was just ridiculous because that's what you aspired to as a young woman. You'd arrived when you either found a husband to give you a fur or you were a career girl who managed to raise enough money to get one yourself. 
So that's changed. Most young people wouldn't be seen dead in fur. Mm -hmm. And now, of course, that's moved on to we don't want leather, we don't want wool, well, many of us don't want wool, and we don't want Angora, we don't want Kashmir. So we have to keep pushing to say, there's an issue with it all. Those things belong on animals' backs. Those are animals' feathers. They're not yours, they're theirs. And so the marketplace is changing to recognize that, sometimes for environmental reasons, but sometimes because people have seen on the internet what happens to animals. Back then, when you used the vegan word, most people had never even heard of it. They thought vegan was somebody who lived in Las Vegas. They just had no idea. Um, and people would say, oh, no, you're not a vegetarian, are you? That's one of those weird religious Hindu Quaker kind of things. But now, of course, foods all over the place, all over the world are marked vegan. And they're in regular supermarkets with the soy milk and the almond milk and everything else. We also went out in front of every circus. The Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey, which built itself as the greatest show on earth. We were at every performance all over the country. And people would spit at us, yell at us, and say, don't spoil it for my children. Mm -hmm. And now, of course, Ringling got rid of the elephants. They retired them. Then they got rid of all the animals. They closed down. They have just come back with no animals at all. So times change and people have to wake up to these ideas that maybe there's some merit to what we're saying. Maybe it isn't so crackers after all. <laughs> and of course, you've seen that with every social movement, not just animal rights, uh, the women's movement, child rights, you know, child labor, civil rights, you name it. And so animal rights is having to break down those barriers, too. Now, Ingrid, I mentioned a lot of the amazing campaigns have been successful in uh, with PETA in the intro, but are there currently any PETA campaigns that people should be made aware of and uh, turn their attention to, both in the United in the U.S. and internationally? Well, all over the world, everybody eats, so there's a good start. You can start uh, helping animals at breakfast. You know, <laughs> put aside the bacon and eggs, get out the oatmeal or. Uh, the fruit or whatever you want, the fake and bacon and <laughs> all the other meat analogs. But yes, what you eat three times a day, Peter Singer always said, you meet animals in the worst possible way, you eat them. So there's that. Most people wear clothes. Unless you're a Jane monk, you're probably wearing some right now. And so when we go out to shop or we look at um, what we fancy, we should look at things that aren't stolen off animals' backs, um, things that are from these wonderful new materials or just old-fashioned cotton and satin and corduroy and uh, linen and those things, or these fancy new wonderful things, grape leather and apple leather. You don't even know sometimes until you look at the label what it's made of. So then what we buy very important. And of course, we must combat the use of animals in laboratories. So if animals were force fed a substance, or maybe it's a slaughterhouse product like lanolin, 
that's in your cosmetic or your household product, avoid it, get something else. There are thousands of cruelty-free products. And educate your friends, please. Use the videos. Mm -hmm. And if you entertain yourself, make sure there's no animal in the picture unless they're there voluntarily. And it's easy to tell. You ask yourself, would they like this? Would they say yes? And if the answer is, doubt it, then don't do it. Yeah, I'm a big fan and educator of helping people understand that those chimpanzees on birthday cards that are dressed up or doing something silly or pretty much any animal uh, that's dressed up or on a birthday card is just not really the best choice. Uh, you could either do a cartoon drawing of one or make your own card, right? Especially now with the use of the internet. So, uh, and people are always very surprised by that. And then I explained to them, what's going on. And usually just a little, a small conversation can usually go a long way mm -hmm. in this day and age, just to help give people a different perspective. Um, so I'm glad you brought that up. I'm so glad because of course we've rescued all those chimpanzees who were on Hallmark and Americans greetings cards and all those, they've all been rescued, but the card companies still use their picture and you right. see them grinning and people think, isn't that just the cutest thing. And of course it isn't, it's a fear grimace. As Dr. Jane Goodall said, you know, when Ham, the chimpanzee came back from outer space and the newspapers showed a picture of Ham grinning. And she said, that's not joy at being back on earth. That's sheer terror. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We've got chills, <laughs> got chills. Well, I know we want to talk about the book. So Angie, you want to lead into that? And now, Ingrid, this segues uh, into my questions about the book, Free the Animals, uh, which tells the amazing true story of the animal liberation front in North America. The book, I have to tell my the listeners, uh, is a real page turner. Uh, it's I, I, a lot of mixed emotions reading it uh, the past couple of weeks. It's thrilling, disturbing. I, I learned a lot that I wasn't aware of about these animals and how they were used in labs in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and even currently. So it was tearful, but then also really uplifting at times, which is just a, a, a lot of emotions and a really fascinating read telling the story about the ALF or the Animal Liberation Front and how they moved from Europe to North America. And I think it's such an interesting historical perspective. So I was wondering if you could give our listeners just a brief synopsis about the main character, Valerie, and her journey to lead the ALF movement in North America. Well, you know, it's funny. I wrote this to be an easy read. I call it, it my, <laughs> my cheap beach novel, but actually it's a novelized version of totally true stories. Every single story in it is absolutely factual. Every detail, every rescue is just spot on. The only thing I had to change were the names and occupations of the characters. Because believe it or not, in the United States, when a felony is committed, in some states, the statute of limitation never runs out. Mm -hmm. So I just have to be a little careful. Mm -hmm. Valerie is and was the founder of the Animal Liberation Front in North America. And she started out, this is true, in law enforcement. And so I've put her as a police officer and she was involved, her whole department 
In the real case of the confiscation, the search and seizure warrant that removed the Silver Spring monkeys from a warehouse lab in Maryland. And um, that opened her eyes to something she'd never thought about before. She was very and is very justice oriented. She doesn't like things that are not right. And when she saw how these monkeys had been treated, that a psychologist with no medical training, no veterinary training, had opened up their backs, severed nerves, and rendered one or both of their arms basically unusable, kept them in tiny metal boxes with rusted wires in their own filth. And when they died, threw them into a barrel with formaldehyde and used auto parts. And she saw all that and she was just so upset. And what happened was all the animal experimenters in the US who heard about it were upset that the place had been raided, not what had gone on in there, but that it had been busted. And many of them called the prosecutor and said, oh, you're not a scientist. You don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you're looking at. You can't prosecute this man, the psychologist. The monkeys have to go back. And everyone who had been involved in the care of the monkeys, including Valerie, decided one night, and they're just ordinary people, mm. we are not going to let it happen. And the monkeys were spirited away and Valerie parked her police cruiser outside the facility so that no one would think that it was an illegal act, but it was. They were removed and off they went to Florida. And that was just so moving to me yeah. and heroic. And just like I said, for me, really eye-opening. Uh, I was just, I was little in the 80s. Mm -hmm. I didn't really know much about the elf movement. So it was a really interesting historic read, but very, very eye-opening to see Valerie and her evolution, because I've had similar evolutions in my lifetime, thinking about animal welfare and animal rights. And I could really, uh, in some ways, relate to her, not necessarily mm -hmm. the, the law-breaking part, which she later on gets into, but uh, definitely the passion and then just her leadership because she then goes over to Europe to train with the um, animal rights movement over there and comes back to North America to, to lead the elf uh, on the Eastern coast. And the, the, the book progresses to tell a lot more stories of uh, the individual liberations of certain animals. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to give it all away for, for our listeners, but I just wondered if you could talk, touch on just a little bit of maybe britches because his story was the one where I was bawling. Uh, I'm, I'm glad I wasn't on the beach <laughs> with the book. I'm glad I was at home in my bed just by myself, but I was, you know, really shooken up about britches and Vanguard. And then of course the baby chimps that were liberated. Well, Britches was a tiny baby monkey. He was only about three weeks old and he had been taken away from his mother because of course that's what experimenters do. Mm. They have, there have been so many scientific papers, not that you should need them, written about the mother-infant bond in all sorts of animals, not just fellow primates like these monkeys. Um, but they just ignore it because it's not convenient to think about. And they'd taken little Britches away from his mother 
They had put him in a cage in a laboratory in California. They had sewn his eyelids shut and they used a very coarse thread that actually turned out had eaten through his eyelids. They bound his face, his eyes with tape and they put a sonar device on his head that almost weighed more than this little monkey. And then they hooked him up to something that recorded his um, reaction to this constant sound that was coming out of the sonar device. He had a surrogate mother, and by that I mean that's a grand term for really a pole with a piece of cloth around it, like a cat's scratching post, that had a nipple that gave out milk to him if he sucked on it. That's it. Hmm. He'd become, in those three weeks, totally neurotic. He would grab at his arms. You know, he would shake. He would have little fits. He was in a terrible mess. And somebody blew the whistle. I love whistleblowers with all my heart. <laughs> and someone called and found the ALF, told them what was going on, told them the other baby monkey had died mm -hmm. and said they couldn't stand by and watch this. So the ALF burst in at night, a whole group of them wearing lab coats. There's a video of it on our website. And they took the doors off by the hinges and they went in and they got out a lot of animals, possums who'd had their eyes uh, sewn shut, cats, rats, and they took out little britches. He went to a veterinarian who was sympathetic, who took out those stitches, undid all this muck, and he was raised, bottle-fed, bathed. He had sores on the back of his head from where the bandages had been improperly, too tightly placed. And eventually he was put with, he went to a sanctuary, the name of which shall not be known. And he was, there was a video of, of him meeting his foster mother, who was a monkey who had had her babies taken away every time that she'd given birth over the years. And she adored him and she would snuggle with him and he with her and they would talk to each other and it was just wonderful. That experiment was stopped. Uh, the um, supposed reason for conducting it, because we always go through the researcher's papers, was to study the effect of blindness on children, in, in children. The researchers had had the goal to write in their grant proposal. They wanted to use baby monkeys because the only naturally born blind children were over a 30-minute drive from the research facility, and therefore it was inconvenient mm. to study them naturally mm. in their homes. Mm. So that was the story of Little Britches. Then Vanguard was a, a, a wonderful cockapoo kind of dog, and he was at the U.S. Naval Research Laboratory. Again, a whistleblower, and this was a commissioned naval officer nearing retirement, had fallen in love with this little dog. And he knew that within a matter of, I suppose a week or so from when he alerted people, that this little dog was going to be put in a deep sea diving decompression test. It was to study the bends. And back then, which is 30 years ago, mm -hmm. 
There hadn't been a new treatment for the bends in 40 years, despite all these experiments. It wasn't going anywhere. He would have his spine crushed when he came back and recompressed, and he would be in excruciating pain, not to mention the fear. This naval officer went down to the National Mall in Washington, D.C., where Peter had a booth and wrote his contact information on a piece of paper and said, if you know anyone who can help me get a little dog out of this experiment, here's my name. And that was very, very brave of him to do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, he almost lost to everything, his mm -hmm. retirement pension, everything. The, the information was passed on to women went into that facility dressed as nurses. They drove through the gate and waved to the guard. He waved them on. By arrangement, the back door to the lab at the loading dock had been left ajar. They went at lunchtime when they were told that all the caretakers were, would be out. They went down into the basement. They found this poor little guy who was covered in sores and they brought him out and they got him to freedom. He went to a beautiful, beautiful home. And years later, I got a photograph of him wearing a sort of baseball cap that belonged to his foster dad. And it said, you know, here is our, our angel. He's brought such joy to our lives. I, yeah, and then- oh, this, this is a hard, yeah. I mean, it's just, I'm like it, almost it in was, tears. I mean, and this really happened, right? And And, so hats off to the ALF that, that has done work and PETA that has done well, work. Well, it, it actually happened. And those experiments stopped for a while. Mm -hmm. But a few years ago, we just discovered within the last several months that the Navy has funded those experiments, not on dogs this time, but on sheep all over the country, at least six different facilities. And today... Well, last night, we launched a campaign to stop them. Sheep do not need to have their spines crushed in this rubbish. There are ways that you can look at the bends that don't involve simulating dives and then putting these animals through all this pain and suffering. This is just rubbish. And a lot of this research is total rubbish that just wastes so much money and time and manpower and animals' lives. Absolutely. And I think a campaign, correct me if I'm wrong, that has stuck, though, um, from PETA's efforts and initially from ELF, uh, rescuing those baby chimpanzees that were used in a private lab and exposing just the the description of the building that the, chimp, the baby chimpanzees and, of course, the adult chimpanzees were in was just like, I have it in my mind because it was it's written really well in the description of it. And I, it's a place of nightmares. And to think that our closest relative, uh, any animal, but the chimpanzees that not so long ago were living like that and being used is just horrific. Uh, but if you want to touch on the fact that due to PETA, ELF and PETA and their uh, campaign efforts, that uh, chimps are no longer used as in labs. Am I correct? You are correct. Um, there are still some who have to be retired, mm -hmm. but uh, there was a decision taken by the National Institutes of Health under duress, may I say, <laughs> of a lot of campaigning by many groups. And we were certainly the leader in saying we must break the species barrier. Chimpanzees are people. 
And here you have them. Uh, Jane Goodall went into this lab and she said it was one of the worst experiences of her life. And she went in because we showed her, I sat down with her and showed her the video footage that the elf had brought out of that lab. They also brought out four baby chimpanzees. And I remember Kyle and Eric were two of the most playful, naughty chimpanzees <laughs> that they took out of there. They took out four because the rest were infected. The four were not yet infected. They had just arrived from an Air Force base and two of them were to be infected with HIV AIDS and two of them were to be infected with hepatitis B. And they were kept in these tiny cages, squeeze cages in a room with just whitewashed walls, nothing to see, nothing to do, no way to even stretch their arms above their heads. The adults were the worst. The poor adults who of course can live to be 60 years old mm -hmm. were doomed to live in these stand-up refrigerator size containers called isolettes. One chimpanzee per isolette. And all they could hear because these places were sealed completely was the hum of the machine bringing air in and out of the isolate. They had a metal grate, like a bench to sit on, and they could stand up and sit down. There was nothing else. They could look out through the double perspex, not glass, but front, and all they would see is a room, nothing in it whatsoever, and they would be there for decades. And they were all infected with HIV AIDS, which of course we know now that chimpanzees don't get. They get SIV, not mm -hmm. HIV. And you can infect them with HIV and they will survive. Back then, humans infected with it died. So it was all pointless, and, but the suffering of these animals was extreme. We managed to stop that. It began the march to get all chimpanzees out of laboratories, mm -hmm. all of them retired, not allowed to be used. And now that has to be across the board. It can't just be chimpanzees. We are in a time of modern 21st century methodologies that don't require you to do these hideous things, not that they ever did. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> no, it definitely has. I mean, you, like I said, you, talking about PETA, you've, you've really impacted the global consciousness and, and that pressure has forced change, you know, and, and we talk about it with conservation and vote with your dollar and putting pressure on companies to, to change. And, and we are doing that. Where are we today? You just mentioned that these, these horrific experiments with the sheep. I know from my experiences in academia, you know, anytime we touch or look at an animal, we had we had to go through a lot of review and and stringent protocols and things like that at the university I was at. But but where are we today with using animals and experiments? And where should we be going? And where do you think we'll be in 20, 30 years? Well, you know, I mean, bit by bit, we're chipping away at it. We have stopped a lot of experiments. We have closed some laboratories down. We have ended some experiments because we've exposed them to be twaddle. Mm -hmm. I mean, basically, what else can you call them? Um, we've taken a lot of animals out and we've had campaigns that 
have stopped airlines like Air France, Egypt Air, all the major airlines from taking monkeys out of the jungles in Vietnam and in Indonesia and Mauritius and shipping them to other countries mm -hmm. and experimenting on them. A lot of them die in transit. They arrive with viruses. I mean, where did we get Ebola from, mm -hmm. you know? And we find that quarantine is not what it's supposed to be. Uh, all sorts of problems. We have a lot of laboratories here at prestigious universities that are rife with disease. And we have exposed that over and over again. But we've got a funding agency here, the National Institutes of Health. And I think it's the same in other countries where they haven't woken up to where we are. Your question of where we are is so vital. We have today whole a human heart the size of your thumbnail that beats in a petri dish. You know, we have organs on a, on chips. You can have yeah, or organoids. Yeah. I was just listening to a organoids, talk about organoids. Mm -hmm. Exactly, organoids. You can take anything. You know, we've got whole human DNA on the internet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we've got so many magnificent things and. You can't cock a snoot at the fact that we have high-speed computers that get faster and faster every day, and you can program them with human data, not what happened to a mouse or a rat or a beaver or whatever you want, mm -hmm. but human data. And you can bombard. I mean, you can use artificial intelligence. You can use all these systems to show the interaction between different chemicals in the human body, not in a beagle. So... You know, why, why we need to take the governments and shake them. The universities, I understand, a lot of them get a slice off the top of any government grant, which they can use for football games. They can mm, use yeah. to buy flowers for the president's house. They can use <laughs> yeah. for anything. Pay all those salaries, so, yes. Yeah, they're, yeah. Not going, they're not going to buck that. Mm -hmm. So the mm -hmm. citizen has to say, people want cures. People don't want money wasted on just show and tell and curiosity experiments. We need real health care. We need real advances in medicine. And we don't need a lot of things we're doing at all. There's no alternative for them because we don't need an alternative. They're rubbish. The forced swim test is one of those things. Yeah, it's uh, horrible. You know, pharmaceutical companies have been using it for years because no one taps them on the shoulder until now and mm -hmm. says, what are you doing? You mm -hmm. give an antidepressant to a small animal and drop them into a beaker of water with glass sides they can't escape, and they they're frantic. They panic. Mm -hmm. They paddle and they try to swim. They try to stay afloat. And when they give up, somebody takes a charge and just marks how long it took before they gave up. Mm -hmm. And we are supposed to think that that tells us whether a, an antidepressant is working in a human being you know you could be seven years old and shake your head at that so yeah. where is modern research and that's why we have this thing called the research modernization deal mm -hmm. which is a roadmap of which experiments you could chuck in the in the garbage right now which ones are easily replaced by modern more sophisticated alternatives and which ones you might want to examine and see whether they're a waste of money or not well, one of the uh, topics of, of, of late is the 4,000 beagles that you just rescued from Invigo. Can you talk about that? 
Sure. Um, we had an undercover investigator, like the whistleblowers, I adore them. And this person got a job inside Invigo, which is a multinational corporation, mm -hmm. has many tentacles, but it was breeding beagles in Virginia, in the US, to sell to experimenters, to facilities all over the, uh, the place. And they had something like 5,500 beagles on site. Our investigator was there for five or six months. And during that time, over 360 puppies died because they'd get their heads caught in the wires. They get their I couldn't even out. watch the video. I tried to watch the video. I started the video uh, on the campaign site and I was, I just, I had to stop it. It was, it was a happy one. In fact, there are several happy ones you can watch. I need a happy one. The, the disturbing one was too dark for me. Uh, well, but I know I, one of my uh, one of my um, friends is actually rescuing an Invigo beagle. So there's going to be a lot of happy stories coming up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the first one you can look for is Samson, S-A-M-S-O-N. And Samson is the first beagle who came out. Our investigator put together such a wonderful, detailed day-to-day -day observations of the shenanigans she saw, the neglect, the abuse, the dogs being hosed down with cold water in winter in their cages and left shivering, the mother dogs not given adequate nutrition, the puppies falling into the drainage ditches and being left there and all this. Samson was the first dog she got out and she got that dog given to her through sheer persistence. And we didn't know if that was the first and last dog, but we went to the Department of Justice, we went to the US Department of Agriculture, we went to the Virginia legislators, we went to the public, and enough people made enough noise that they were charged, they were found to have violations of innumerable things. And Vigo this month will close down in Virginia, the Virginia facility will close forever, and we got with other you know, humane societies cooperating throughout the country, 4,000 of these wonderful dogs out. They're on grass for the first time. They're rolling on their backs. Mm -hmm. They're eating great food. They're sleeping in a comfy bed. And they're with people who care about them. They all had dental problems. They had other physical problems in a facility that's supposed to breed animals that are in fine health. They weren't. <laughs> Uh, uh, I love beagles as a, my, my late beagle, uh, yeah. always in my heart, oh, always in my heart. And, and even, even I think just as good of news is the fact that the legislature in Virginia, I believe is coming together, uh, to, to talk about looking, reshaping, uh, laboratory use of dogs and cats in Virginia. Is that correct? It is. And you may be don't know how conservative a jurisdiction we're in. Mm -hmm. Virginia is an ultra conservative place. It's a hunting and fishing state and it's a meat producing state and so on. And the fact that when people in the legislature saw the conditions for dogs, for these beautiful, passive, lovely, harmless beagles being treated like dirt, they came together. And it really is quite a landmark thing they've done, and they want to do more. And believe me, we're ready. We have mm -hmm. a long list of more. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think 
this is maybe where we might diverge a little bit and 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 that's going into conservation and how we attack and 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 overcome what's going on around the planet and that's fine we love these discussions we angie and i really want to think of new new ways to view the world Um, your book has definitely opened our eyes to a lot of more things that we weren't aware of and and PETA does that and does it very well our focus has been conservation and and we've been doing this podcast for four years now we've been telling a lot of stories about a lot of species that are suffering that are dying in the wild that are losing their homes left right and center that are faced with extinction forever and trying to marry up ethical treatment of animals and 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 in the interest of time because i know we're running out and a perfect example is we had a wonderful interview with Dr. Barney Long from Rewild, and he is bringing in Sumatran rhinos. There's only about what 90 left, Angie, I think 90 to 100 left in the, in the world into BOMAs under human care to protect them from poaching, trying to breed them and then establish these parks where they can release them. My question is can we do that ethically from your standpoint? you know, in trying to save these animals, because if we do nothing, many of these animals would have been lost uh, to extinction, to poaching, to human exploitation, all of that. So it's like a big thing that Angie and I are like, wow, you know, how do we attack this? So that's my question. Can this be done ethically? If, if, if something like that with, I think that's the most extreme example I can get of trying to, to save a, fe- a species faced with extinction. Well, I'm not really one for saving species, which may shock you. I'm for saving ones who are already born. Mm -hmm. And I think it's grand that he's taking these rhinos, putting them in bombers and having people look after them and saving them from poaching and what have you. That's great. What I don't like is, and I mean, bless his heart, he means well, uh, it just goes against what I believe, Mm. is he's breeding them to make more and then you have to have land to put them on. You know, unborn animals don't know they don't exist. And sometimes it strikes me that we do this because we like to see a diverse population of this animal, that animal. It's almost like going to Disneyland to a theme park. We don't want to be deprived ourselves of seeing a puffin or a a rhino or this, that and the other. We want our grandchildren to see them. But what's happening is the world is going up in fire and drought in everything. And I'm not at all sure that we will have places to put existing animals before long. And I would love to see us get away from the idea that we have to preserve this and we have to preserve that in the future and look at what we've got today because it's all going to hell in a handbasket, and you fly over every any country and you see very little land that animals of any kind, not only the exotic species that we really love to save, but any little creature can eke out an existence in because of encroachment, because of mining and even hiking trails and you know, mountaineering, anything, any human activity, let alone highways, shopping malls, and so on. Mm -hmm. So I don't really go along with this. And I I may really be putting my foot in it, but (laughs) I really want to save the the ones who are suffering today. I run a bull sanctuary 
-hmm. in India. And people say, you must be crackers to run a bull sanctuary. <laughs> and when I'm there with the bulls, I think, uh-oh, maybe so. <laughs> but they're ones who have come off. They've been um, laden with sugar cane, four tons at a time. They're, you know, often they're exhausted, their muscles have gone, they're in terrible shape. I wouldn't, if, if you told me they were endangered, I wouldn't want to keep them and breed them mm. and make more bulls. I would just say, I'm so glad to have rescued you and I want you to be comfortable and safe. I want to take your pain away. I want to groom you and feed you, make sure you have fresh water. And when you die, you die. You don't need offspring. We've got mm. enough animals if we care about them. Well, and Inger, that leads me into the question about zoos, roadside zoos, accredited zoos, sanctuaries. And it's somewhat historically, zoos and PETA have butt heads a little bit here and there. And since these animals are under human care as it is, and they're not in the wild, do you think it would be possible for PETA to ever coexist or work with accredited zoos, which I'm sure we both can agree there's a big difference between an accredited zoo versus a roadside zoo as far as their welfare standards and regulations. Oh, we Could do. We... Yeah. 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 Yeah, we and... absolutely do. Every day we work with accredited zoos because we have wonderful experts from the zoo community who understand these cheap, shoddy roadside zoos, which are really menageries, mm -hmm. where you take a bear or two bears and shove them in a cement floor. And you take, you swim with them and take Oof. selfies with them and all yeah. this garbage. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's all totally garbage. And these experts from the legitimate uh, good zoos um, help us a lot. And, mm -hmm. and we, we're very beholden to them. We, we adore their expertise. There are bad zoos, as you know. And in fact, there have been some exposés of accredited zoos where things have been going on <laughs> with breeding and so mm. on that shouldn't have been and even the trade in exotic uh species illegal trade at some zoos but yes um azpa zoos uh we're friends um i think the idea of zoos is not a good one from the start when you know people would go overseas to south america or africa and they would shoot the parents bring back the babies They'd often die in transit, just as the lab monkeys do today. Mm -hmm. And then they would put them on a ship, you know, giraffes in a, in a wooden crate and bring them to somewhere in Germany, put them in a little cement box and have people come and gawk at them. There was no understanding of who animals are, their emotional lives, their intelligence, their bonds, their families, their relationships. It was just, oh, look at that. Let's bring that to Germany or wherever it was and have other people pay to see it. Um, so the beginning, the foundation of zoos as menageries was bad. But zoos have, many of them have evolved. Roadside zoos all need to be shut down. And I think we've shut down 34 in this country so far. And we are working on shutting every single last one of them down with the help of the accredited zoo experts who care. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I just, I love that because I'm more, because I feel as though that passion's there, the science is there. And I, and I just like groups that have similar um, missions, maybe not exactly the same, but similar missions working together to keep improving the welfare 
for animals under human care, whether they're in accredited zoos or shut down those roadside zoos, put those animals in accredited sanctuaries, uh, get them get them living lives, like you mentioned with the beagles, where they can roll around in grass and climb trees and and uh, and do what they need to do to have an enriched life. We are not having been not having beagles climb trees. You can just wipe that out. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I've seen some. uh, I've seen some uh, wild beagles before. They love to run. But yes, exactly. And um, so, no, I appreciate you commenting on that. And Mm -hmm. now, with doing this for so many years and having being so passionate and active. Oh my gosh! uh, With all you do from the campaigns, to the traveling, to the lectures, the talks, uh, podcasts, the PETA podcast. We'll talk a little bit about that um, in in a few minutes. But I've only been doing this uh, part-time for four or five years, uh, minus graduate school. And I was just wondering if you could give myself and maybe some of our listeners out there who are also uh, activists, uh, whether it's for animal rights or conservation or, or whatnot, how do you avoid burnout? Um, how do you stay so made? How do you stay so motivated? Like you mentioned, when we see the world on fire and what, mm-hmm. are, what are we doing mm-hmm. here? Mm-hmm. I think that the danger is people allow themselves to sink into the depressing parts. And but there are certainly so many of those. Um, the state of the world is pretty awful. And the state, once you look at cruelty to children, cruelty to animals, uh, spousal ab- abuse, you uncover a world you, you wish you hadn't known about. But once you know about it, there you are. And I think if you concentrate on what you can do, which may sound very simplistic, but it's a question of disciplining yourself, I think, which becomes perhaps easier over time. I can look back and I know how far we've come. I can look forward and I know how far we've got to go and Mm. it's a long road, but I don't want to do that. I want to seize opportunities today and I want to look back and I want to say, look, if we hadn't pushed and we hadn't agitated and made those videos and gone undercover and spoken out and changed our habits, we wouldn't have what we have today. We wouldn't have changed. So I think you look back and smile knowing that if you do whatever you can do today, somebody will look back 10 years, 20 years from now and think, I'm so glad she did that because we wouldn't have had whatever we've got now or we wouldn't have stopped whatever we stopped now. But I will tell you, um, it's so, I know, it's so hard to not be depressed Mm. when we see what we see, what humans do to other humans is bad enough, what they do to animals is insufferably wrong. But my friend once said to me, because we're in an area near a very low income area in North Carolina, where everyone has a dog out on a chain, usually a pit bull on a chain. And they're out there in the winter. They're out there in hurricanes. We have hurricanes in this Mm -hmm. area. They're out there in the burning summer heat when it's a hundred and some degrees here. And sometimes they don't have shade. They don't have shelter. They, they die out there. And I came back from the field one day and I said to my friend who worked here, I, you know, I lie awake on a winter's night in my warm bed. And I think, oh God, they're out there. They're out there. Mm-hmm. It's every bone in their body aches. They cannot stop shivering and shaking. And they're going to have to go through. She said, stop it. She said, 
tell your brain, your computer between your ears to blot it out. Don't allow yourself to envision this. But think of something pleasant. Think of something nice. Make yourself go to sleep. Have a good night's sleep. And you will wake up tomorrow refreshed and ready to do something about it. And I thought, well, that sounds right. And I've tried to do that ever since. Yeah. That's sage advice. And and I know we only got a couple more minutes. And and I just want to say thank you for coming on the podcast. I think it's important we have this discussions. And and like I said earlier, we may not agree on everything. We need to take barriers down. I know in the US and around the world, there's there's all these big gaps now in political opinions. And and we need to bridge those gaps if we're going to get through climate change, if we're going to to be where we need to be a progressive society. And PETA has changed, like I said, has changed the discourse. Bar none, you, you cannot argue with that. And if you don't care about animal welfare, you don't have a soul. I'm sorry, I said that. But my final question for you is, is, is where, uh, do you have any, what's PETA's current big campaign? You've mentioned a few of them, but where do you see, you know, PETA going in the next few years? I think we look at what's happening around us and that's what we try to change if it's rotten. Um, it, I'm not sure what happens in New Zealand, but here uh, kids are still, many of them, dissecting in school. And so we've made a synthetic frog called Synfrog, which has little organs in it. You can cut it open. You can do everything. I'm not sure why any child needs to know what's inside a frog. I've never understood that. They're not going to be frog vets when they grow <laughs> up. But anyway, you know, dissection is a big thing for us. Yeah. Hermes, which is called, you know, a luxury item with lizard skin handbags and crocodile skin watches and so on. We've done all the exposés and we're asking people, Hermes may make you look filthy rich, but really what they have is filth if you look at their crocodile pits and so on. So getting away from the idea that exotic skins are luxury somehow, they're not. They're garbage out of filth where animals are killed badly, especially animals people don't like. Mm -hmm. Um, and then it, we're really back to our basics, is look at our videos if you can possibly bear it and see how they treat these alpacas for mohair, rabbits, you know, frangora, all, you know, all these animals. If there's an animal in the equation, they didn't give you what was on their back. They didn't give you their leg to chew on. Is that really think about it and show other people the videos. And if you tell yourself, I can't bear to watch it, then you don't have to watch it as long as you don't support what went into exactly. it. Exactly, oh, know? exactly. Turn away, but just don't be part of the problem, be part of the solution. And Ingrid, my last question for you is that you've been such an iconic voice for the animals over the years, and you've inspired so many people to get involved with animal rights. I think PETA has 6 million members. Something uh, like that, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's incredible. So what do you want your legacy to be? I want my legacy to be activism. Um, I've made a will, you know, so a lot of people find the will amusing or horrifying, where parts of my body are going to be taken by a pathologist. It's all being worked out legally and still used in demonstrations, like a little bit of my liver. If when I'm dead, they're still having foie gras, fatty liver, mm -hmm. send it to France and put it somewhere in a demonstration, take 
all the bits of me and use them to make a point. So I will live on in my activism after I'm dead. And my legacy, I would hope, is to say to people, you have one life. Don't go to your grave thinking, I should have said something then. I should have done something then. Why was I afraid? Why was I hesitant? Why did I think convenience mattered more than ethics? Do it. A hundred percent. That is, I, uh, I just appreciate your, your spirit and your passion and all the work you've done. It's really, really inspiring um, for myself. And I'm hopefully for our listeners out there. I, I highly recommend that you check out the book, uh, the animal liberation story, uh, Free the animals. Uh, ah, yes. <laughs> the th- well, not only free the animals, but the 30th anniversary edition mm-hmm. uh, of the amazing true story of the Animal Liberation Front in North America. And I have to highlight the fact that PETA has their very own podcast. So feel free to check that out in all of your uh, streaming platforms. And you can find more information about the current campaigns um, that Ingrid mentioned, uh, the recent ones to stay updated, watch the videos, learn more, share this information uh, with the people that you love, that you know love animals and want better for them. And they can be found at www.peta.org. And I just want to say, Ingrid, it it has just been a a really eye-opening pleasure talking with you today and reading this book. I, I highly recommend it to our listeners out there. It's a inner, I don't want to say it's not entertaining. It's a page turner though. Yeah. It's a really, I found myself wanting to go to bed early just so I could find out what, <laughs> whether or not Valerie rescued the animals or not. And then, and so it's just, it's, it's a, it's a really great read. And I think it's, it's eye-opening if you're not familiar with PETA and some of their campaigns and so follow them on social media uh, to stay uh, in the loop, uh, to help vote with your dollar by mm-hmm. staying away from animals and animal products. And of course, uh, go to the elections and vote for people too that support um, stopping to use animals and experiments as well. So thank you, Ingrid. Thank you, Ingrid. Thank you. Thank you very much. And use our resources at PETA.org. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you everyone for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this interview today with Ingrid Newkirk from PETA.